Carrie Nugent. I'm a professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Peter Veris, a research scientist at the Minor Planet Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are recording on January 31st, 2022. <laughs> I was going to say 2022. It's 2023. I'm not quite there yet. I am drinking a blueberry soda from Maine Root. What do you have? I actually have a small cup of coffee, especially espresso coffee. That's my favorite one. And you were saying earlier that you actually have a, a machine? I do, yes. Yeah, it's a classical espresso machine where you have to actually provide coffee, not the pots. So you have to make it kind of almost from scratch. Well, that sounds delicious. This blueberry soda is also delicious. It tastes like a blueberry pie. It's very sweet. So now that we have our drinks, we are going to talk about the Minor Planet Center. And on the show, we've mentioned the Minor Planet Center before, but just so everyone is on the same page, could you explain what it is? Uh, certainly. Minor Planet Center is a worldwide center that receives observations of asteroids and comets and also outer planets minor satellites from all around the world. And observations mean positions, so it means where those objects were at a given time with the location of the observations and also the brightness of the objects. We are not just receiving the data but also computing the orbits and also sharing the information with the world. So our data and services are public. Which is really cool. Like. Anybody can just go to the website minorplanetcenter.net and get all of the data about all of the asteroids that you've ever had. It's a very big file. <laughs> That's true. And it's not just the professionals. We have many amateur astronomers who are really contributing to our data set. Could you give a sense of how much data you deal with every year? How many observations do you get? So for instance, last year, it was 41 million observations. That was only in 2022. But if you count all of them, historically, we have, we have 375 million observations on our file. And that basically is equal to 1.25 million known orbits in the solar system. That's so wild. <laughs> That's so many. I think it might be hard for people to make sense of how you keep track of a million of something. How, how do you possibly handle a million of something, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, the story is in the past, the number was not that great. If you just move like 20, 30, 40 years into the past, you can imagine the data were not even sent by electronic way, like almost in real time, but it was basically sent, let's say in a paper form, just, just move like decades ago, but the amount was little if you compare it to nowadays data. So currently everything is done on computers. So all the data they are incoming are processed automatically in our pipelines. And we even try to process the data as fast as possible. So for instance, for NEOCP, that's the Near-Earth Object Confirmation page for objects we think are freshly discovered NEOs, we post the data to the website after all the verifications, after the data is saved to the database within typically one or two minutes. So basically wow. our time is getting closer and closer to zero when it comes to the processing time. And, you know, these were kind of routines that were built up over time, I guess, is another way this works. You didn't have to go from scratch to a million in like a week or something. Correct, correct. So fortunately, some routines were written like, let's say, one, two decades ago, but we are always improving because the original routines were not built, let's say, to work on multiple processors or multiple machines. So we are using like computer clusters and multiple nodes. So we are trying to distribute the work to, to have it done as soon as possible. 
You kind of mentioned this, but could you talk in a little bit more detail the role the Minor Planet Center plays in asteroid discovery? Certainly. As I mentioned, it's the only center, and that's kind of important. If you imagine you would have multiple centers around the world, people would be sending the data elsewhere, and the data set would not be really the same. So that's kind of crucial to have just a single place, and that distributes not just the data, but also the orbits. And I like to say, like, there is no discovery without follow-up, So discovery is not just when you see an object for the first time. It's just a single position or a few sets of positions within the night. You need positions from the second, third, fifth, tenth night to compute the orbit. So once the orbit is computed and well determined, you can say that's a discovery. And MPC actually issues a designation. So so discovery means there is an orbit, there is a set of observations, there is a unique designation that is created by MPC. And the designation consists of a year and a set of letters of numbers denoting like when in the year particularly was this object discovered. I think it's also interesting that other astronomers who are not interested in asteroids and comets also rely on the Minor Planet Center. Could you explain, for example, why people who are interested in supernovas rely on your services? So basically for people dealing with the research of static skies, talk about asteroids as vermins of the sky, because they are interested in things that change on the sky but are static. So for instance, you're looking in an image and there are stars, you know these stars, you have a map of those stars, and suddenly something new pops out, even in a galaxy or even outside of the galaxy if it's a distant quasar. But it could be also an asteroid if it is moving, so they would like to get rid of those moving objects from their data sets, So they like to analyze, hmm, is this a thing that is moving or is it a static thing? So yeah, I I believe they are trying to identify also the the moving objects if they are known or unknown. Yeah, if anything's changing in the sky and you don't know if it's a thing you want to be changing or an asteroid, you check with the Minor Planet Center to say, is this an asteroid or not? And then it enables a lot of other science because if there's millions of them, they get in the way a lot. (laughs) That, that's true, and, and there are other services, not just MPC, and those are downloading our data, and they are offering APIs for many other groups, so some of them are even on your cell phone. If you download an app, and you can basically look for targets that are bright and near the Earth, or let's say in the main belt, like the bright minor planets like Ceres and Vesta. So even apps that you can download on your phone have the data that uh, come from MPC at some point. Yeah, because it's the one place. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is the clearinghouse. Could you talk a little bit more about the software and the hardware that powers this work? Like, what language is it written in? What type of computers is it on? So not long time ago, we were using very Asian system of so-called VMS machines. And those unfortunately ended up their life in 2019. I know it's, it's kind of late for that type of machine anyway. So from that moment, we really moved all our software to Linux machines or Linux boxes. And for those, we have computer clusters. Some of here are located here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in our Cambridge Discovery Park. And some are located elsewhere, thanks to our NASA support, because MPC is also currently a functional subnode of small body node. So we are getting help from NASA as well. So we are having machines not just here, but also elsewhere, where we are basically having a fail-safe copy of our data, but also a processing machine. So we are trying to process data at multiple places at the same time. And the languages we use, so it's basically, as I mentioned, it's Linux. So mostly we are coding mostly in Python, but old code was all written almost in Fortran. So the Fortran and Python are most frequently used languages that we still kind of use nowadays. 
but but then obviously we are using scripting languages like bash Perl, and other pieces that we can kind of glue those older codes together and also database also databases obviously we have a lot of data so it will be really difficult to keep the data only in the flat files or text files so we are using databases in form of MySQL database or currently Postgres databases that we share with people as well. I know that it was a tremendous amount of work to upgrade from those old systems that you've done recently, but so important. And I was at just the beginning of the things because recently MPC has hired many more people. So currently MPC staff is more than 10 people, I believe it's like 13 people. But historically, this number was much smaller, it was like three, four or five people. And most of the new hires are software engineers. So you could kind of understand we are really going this way to do things properly in a professional way. And the most recent development is even moving our code to Amazon Web Services and basically into cloud. So that's something new that I also have to learn. So that should be the future, I guess. It's really interesting that you mentioned that there's 13 people working there because I might imagine that a listener listening to this thinks it's like 100 people working at this clearinghouse of such important data, keeping track of all the asteroids. But it is just, you know, 13, and 13 is a lot compared to what it used to be. That's a lot. That's correct. Yes. We are improving our services a lot, and many of those services can be used by other people. So one of the services I'm kind of proud of is the identifications pipeline we set up two years ago that allows people to submit identifications to the Minor Planet Center. So what does it mean? So in addition to those hundreds of millions of observations that we share with people, those are observations of known objects. But there are observations that are unknown. So there are about eight, nine million observations of objects that, that are unknown. So basically they were only observed once and we don't know whether it belongs to nearer objects or main build objects, we have no idea. But we can link those dots together. Maybe if we have correct software, if we spend enough time, we can find orbits among those dots that, that seem random. So it's not just professionals, but also amateurs who can kind of go through the data and link those dots together. And so we set up the pipeline that allows people to submit these linkages to MPC. So wherever they link three or four or five different nights of dots together from this so-called isolated tracklet file, we verify it, we compute the orbit. And if the orbit is good, if the residuals of the orbit fit look good enough, we issue a designation. So in the last two years, when I look at the statistics, in 2021, we issued 120,000 orbits that were submitted mostly about outsiders to the Minor Planet Center. And the previous year it was 160,000. So there are people from outside, many of them amateurs, who are finding observations of objects. They link together and they actually discover objects in our database. So I find it cool that people from outside can go and go through our data and find new objects. And yeah. interestingly, last year, they found 25 NEOs in our data. Wow. So just to be super clear, this is where the Minor Planet Center had the data, mm -hmm. the positions and the brightness. But because they weren't in a pattern of observations where you could see something very clearly moving between them, they were never identified. They were never identified as individual objects. They were just kind of unlinked to anything, but something was there. And so they're going back and relinking them to existing Correct. orbits. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Because basically every night when uh, observers are sending data to us, some observations are labeled. So they already know, okay, this object belongs to a given asteroid or a comet. So we receive it. Then they send data that are unlabeled, but even though we are able often to identify them. 
So they send it to us, we are able to identify and label them so they're immediately assigned to known orbits. So the known orbits are improved every time we receive observations. But a relatively small fraction, I would say maybe 10 or 15 or 20% of observations from the large surveys, they are still unknown. So we are running our internal linking mechanism that is able to discover objects there, but uh, other people can do the same. And they do a great job, I have to say. It's interesting. It's such a complex problem that different techniques can really yield different results. And one might be slightly better at one type of object and another technique might be slightly better at a different type of object. So it's nice to have everybody trying different methods on it. It's really hard. Yes. And this pipeline is automated. So people submit their submissions. Some of them might not be really correct. So our pipeline will reject them, but most of them are really correct. So those are posted. So people are really contributing to the discovery of asteroids and comets this way. And they don't even need to have a telescope. Yeah. If somebody wanted to do that type of work, do you have any resources to recommend to them? So they can go to our website, find the portion of the website that says identifications. So there is documentation, how to submit it to us. They will have a link to the isolated tracklet file. That's the file with all those unlinked observations. And they can try. I'm so glad you mentioned this. This sounds like a great class project. <laughs> I'm going to check it out right after we hang up because I have to assign a project in two weeks. <laughs> so in addition to observations, because we, we want to know where was the location of the person who observed a given object. So currently our list of observatories is, is 2,400. So that's the number of observatories, but many of those are historical. So the number one observatory we have is Greenwich with the code 000, that's basically the first one, obviously. But since then, it was like a long time ago, we have 2,400 observatories in our catalog, but most of them are amateur actually. So like more than 1,700 are amateur. And in last year alone, we had observations from 542 observatories reporting to Minor Planet Center. Wow. And more than 100 of them contributed with more than 1,000 observations. So, so it's not just like few major surveys and many of them funded directly by NASA to search for nearer asteroids. It's often amateur astronomers who are contributing to our data set. Yeah, I really love that about this particular field of work is that it's very open and anybody can help and we'll take anybody's help and it's just very collaborative. Correct. And I would say that sometimes those people who I call amateurs are almost professionals because they have great telescopes, they know what they do. Recently, I would say the great development was done in the synthetic tracking. They use a software that was built basically by an amateur and many people use it all around the world. It's called Tycho software that actually tracks and stacks images from very small telescope and they can go really deep in the magnitude. So they suddenly started discovering asteroids with backyard telescopes. And they are sending the data to the minor planet center. So when you see the list of most active discoverers, from the last year, when it comes to NEOs, you will find maybe on the fourth or fifth place, there are amateurs from Chile who are doing this work. That's so cool. <laughs> the, and that line is very blurred. You know, if you're quote unquote an amateur, but you've been doing it for 20 years, yep. you've got a lot of experience and, you know, you're just splitting hairs on what your educational background was way back when. Could you share what you like about this work? 
I would say it's actually being with the data at the moment they arrive. So I'm one of the first people in the world that, that they see new discoveries. And that's particularly interesting, let's say, if you have a fresh Earth impactor going toward the Earth. I'm not talking about any asteroid killers or planetary, planetary killers. I'm talking about those small few meter size objects that hit the Earth like twice last year. But it's always amazing just seeing the data and seeing the warning messages we see from our system. And then we are just waiting, let's say, a few minutes uh, when other people from other world will notice, like, oh, it's an impactor. And it's like, we knew already. There was a very small object that impacted over Canada just a few months ago. What was that like for you? Actually, that one was at night. The funny part is that because all our pipelines are pretty much automated, so even the, the notices and warning emails are coming out, out automatically, I basically woke up at night at like maybe 4 a.m. and I saw the message on my phone and I was like seeing like some of my colleagues is actually awake. So I was like, hmm, he probably noticed. So I'm going back to sleep. So so basically, thanks to our automation, the data are coming out. They are posted to any OCP and other people can work on it. So we don't need to have people being awake all the time waiting for these objects. So seems seems to me the systems are working pretty well automatically. Yeah. And again, that was a really small one that yes. was scientifically interesting, but nobody thought it was going to be any sort of hazard. Do you ever think about what would happen if a really big one was headed our way? Like, do you have a plan in place? Is it something that makes you nervous? Oh, not really, because that's highly unlikely. And that's that's good to know that we have the statistics. And one of the way how to get the statistics is from observations of all the known asteroids. And that's also the role of MPC to having the list or full catalog of the objects. So you kind of have an idea how frequently does it happen. Not just from counting the craters on the moon, let's say, but also from the population of discovered objects. So the question is, what is the large one? Is it like 20 meters in size, 50 meters or 100? But it's so rare that I feel safe. And also thanks to not just the MPC, but discoverers all around the world, they are trying really hard to discover all of those large ones. So I feel pretty safe due to the statistics and the hard work that is done by all the planetary defense team. Very well said. I feel like we also have to do the disclaimer of there's no known object that has a serious threat to Earth. Out of all the ones that have been found, neither you or I are worried about them. <laughs> Correct. Out of those 31,000 nearer asteroids that are found up to date, none of them had any impact hazard with Earth. Some of them have like non-zero probabilities, but those are really, really tiny chances. And those will be likely nailed down to zero after more observations are posted to MPC. Is there any sort of misconception about your work that people have that you'd like to address? I would say that maybe sometimes people think that our data are secret, something we saw in a movie recently, Don't Look Up. And that's not really true, because as I mentioned, our data are public, and it's not just the professionals, but also many amateur astronomers are able to uh, compute the impact probability for any object. So. Even for the last Earth impact or the small one, the amateurs knew within one hour that this object is going to hit the Earth. So it will be really difficult to hide data like that, especially when our data are public. So maybe that's one misconception. And the second is that maybe some people think we are receiving images. So maybe they would like to see an object that was named after them, because many asteroids, like more than 20,000, are named after, let's say, some of them are named after countries or historical characters, but many of them are named after living people. 
So some people maybe wish to see that object in the image, but we unfortunately don't have images. We just have the positions of those asteroids. You also do work with the Amos Meteor Network. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, certainly, that's a network of meteor cameras. And long time ago, when I was a graduate student in Slovakia, where I got my PhD, my colleagues actually developed a network of cameras, all sky cameras that automatically scan entire sky every single night. And they detect meteors, the bright ones, falling stars, the brighter than, let's say, plus fourth or fifth magnitude. So those you can see with your eyes, but the advantage is you have like all sky and it's a video system. So it's not a photograph, something like people used 20, 30 years ago. It's a video with like 20 frames per second. So they can compute orbits for these tiny particles if they observe it from two stations that are separated by, let's say, 80 miles from each other. So they build this system on multiple places around the world, obviously starting in Slovakia 15 years ago. So they have four systems there. But then they build two in Canary Islands, two in Hawaii, two are in Chile, two will be in South Africa, and two are now in Australia. So 15 years ago, when I was still a grad student, I was one of the people who was developing the system, who was basically going through the data, cleaning the data from false positive. And I'm still with contact with my former colleagues from Slovakia and helping them, with, especially with the stations in Hawaii. So we have a camera on Haleakala and the second on Mauna Kea. Those are very small and tiny systems. You cannot imagine these are like large telescopes. It's basically a box, maybe only like two, three feet tall, maybe one, two feet wide. That's pretty much it. It's a box that functions by itself. It just needs electricity and internet connection. That's it. It opens itself, it closes itself, depending where the sun is on the sky. Obviously, we only observe at night. It also has sensors, so whenever the humidity of the air is too high, it closes. Whenever it rain is incoming, it closes as well. Whenever it's cloudy, it closes. So it's a system like this. It's pretty interesting. You mentioned briefly that if you get two different observations of a meteor from two cameras, you can mm -hmm. compute an orbit. Could you just describe a little bit more how that works and why an orbit is interesting? Well, basically, just imagine you have two systems that are separated by, let's say, 100 miles or 80 miles. And if you see the same meteor from both stations, you know it's the same because the time is exactly the same. So it's kind of important to have the time correct on both stations. And often we have even three stations that see the same meteor. But because the meteor kind of burns at the altitudes of typically 80 or 100 kilometers above Earth's surface, it basically appears on a different portion of the sky. So the parallax is so obvious that maybe you have one meteor in uh, Big Dipper from one station, on another station is somewhere south of Arcturus in the other constellation. So the parallax is so large, you can pretty much easily compute where the object was in the atmosphere in 3D for every single frame, and you can basically backtrack its orbit and you can compute the heliocentric orbit. So you know, you kind of knew this object went like from the main belt or maybe from a region far beyond Jupiter, so it belongs to the cometary population or meteor population. So that's that's one of the reasons why we have these cameras, not just to observe the meteors for the sake of statistics, but kind of deliver information, where are they coming from? Maybe they have some parent objects, maybe not just the known comets, but maybe asteroids as well. What you would read in a textbook is that meteor showers are caused when the Earth passes through where a comet has been, and we're passing through that kind of trail and dust. But with this type of resolution and being able to calculate where this piece of dust or some very, very small rock was orbiting around the sun, you could, you could actually test that theory, right? You could figure out exactly where it's coming from. 
And maybe even I can add to that. So even the meteor showers we observe every year are not the same, even the famous ones. So sometimes the activity is higher, sometimes it's lower. And you can kind of even distinguish some parts of the shower belonging to a special event that appeared, let's say, at a given time in the past. Like we knew that if there is a particular part of the shower you observe, we knew like this, this particle or set of particles left the comet 55 years ago. We can only know it because we compute the orbits back and we see, okay, this matches. That's really cool. <laughs> I think most people would be surprised to learn that. You can get that level of specificity. There's something funny where, you know, as scientists, we talk about meteors and we talk about comets and we talk about asteroids. And they're kind of different groups of objects and each require different scientific tools to study them. Like we'll use a telescope to study an asteroid, but we'll use small cameras to study meteors. But they're really kind of... <sighs> Very similar, right? Like these very small rocks that you see as meteors came from asteroids or comets, right? And it's it's funny that we don't quite have a complete picture of how those interactions work quite yet. It's a very active field of research, I think. And what I find interesting is because of the survey telescope that are working more and more better in a way of discovering smaller and smaller objects when it especially comes to nearer objects, we are kind of connecting the populations already. So the smallest objects we ever discovered were on the size of a table, right? So there are maybe one or two meters in size. Maybe the smallest one is even smaller than one meter. So of course you only see them when they are really flying close around the earth. But on the other hand, the largest meteors are basically maybe of the size of one meter. That's a really large bolide that has fragments of meteorites that land on earth. So we are slowly able to connect those populations. So we see them in the space, we can even predict they are going to hit the Earth. We can even go to the place where they are going to hit. We set up the cameras. We observe it burning the atmosphere. So I think I, I find it fascinating. Yeah. Do you have any meteorites? Uh, I do. I think I have one or two. I was lucky to be a part of one expedition that was searching for a fresh fall in 2010 in Slovakia. So that was a meteor that actually landed in Slovakia and it was detected by a camera system. And we kind of computed the location where it fell. So we went there, a group of people, and we searched there and we found many fragments. So I oh, personally that's so found, cool. I found, found like three fragments and our expedition found 88 fragments in total. Wow. The, the tiniest one were only like a few grams, but it was really nice to see that and, and find it in the grass and pick it up and hold it in your hand. And uh, the largest piece was like two kilograms. Wow, that's so cool. It's so cool to hold something in your hand that's just been in space. <laughs> exactly. And it just landed basically two weeks prior we found it. Oh, that's awesome. So thank you so much, Dr. Veris, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the Minor Planet Center and meteors, we get to hear a fun fact about Peter. I like Star Trek. I do too. Which Star Treks? <laughs> that's a good question. I would say all of them, but I have to say <laughs> I was raised by the next generation. Yeah, that's got a, a place in my heart. I've been really into Lower Decks as well. I'm not usually into cartoons, but... Me too, me too. And the reason is because the timeline of Lower Decks kind of started after the TNG. So maybe that was nice to see going back to that era. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And thanks so much for sharing. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com, and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter.
The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.